0: Sci-fi sidebar. I'm your co-host, Cece,
1: and I'm Peter, your other co-host.
0: Welcome to our episode on Seth Dickinson's "The Trader Baru Cormorant," which we picked as our uh, our anniversary up because it's sort of not really sci-fi. It's, I mean, honestly, I kind of feel like it is sci-fi a little bit, but
1: I kind thought you were in... going to go,
0: huh?
1: I thought you were going to go into that being like, well, you know, it's kind of a cross between sci-fi and, uh, and fantasy because that's the vibe I got from it the entire time.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, that wasn't really why I picked it, but I do feel that way. (laughs) And like, the only (laughs) reason I feel like it counts as fantasy is because it's a pseudo medieval setting instead of a future or I guess alien setting. But it's, it's, it's much more about like science quote unquote than it is about magic. There is no magic, really, in this book.
1: Yeah, you're definitely right. I think it's basically, we talked, we see that try not to talk about books before we actually do the episode. Yeah, uh, so that we don't accidentally forget a bunch of shit we talked about.
0: <laughs> so save all the good content for you guys.
1: Well, I mean, we barely get into an in hour episode. <laughs> Sometimes sometime, the so. bad content. Almost always the bad content. <laughs> we get the good stuff out later between the two of us. Right. Uh, no. So the. Mm-hmm. What this book really struck home, like it reminded me of very, very much, was just A Brave New World. It's basically a brave new world set in a medieval time sleep.
0: Yeah, it kind of blew my mind when you said that, actually. <laughs> I thought about that for days. I was like, He's right. Oh my God. <laughs> but it's like, we don't see the experience of conquest in a Brave New World. We just see sort of the aftermath.
1: But this is how they would do it, right? Like, a Brave New World is all about balancing economics and, like, thinking out the most efficient way to do things. Totally. And trying to, like, fulfill a lot of roles. I mean, most efficient, barring, of course, automation, which we talked to at length about before. Right. Uh, but anyway. Well, so I mean, it does. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> okay, get into it. We already did that book. No, we already did that. <laughs> I had a similar thing just go in my head.
0: <laughs> Suppress it.
1: Uh, anyway, so we see the the masquerade. This is probably how the government in A Brave New World would conquer.
0: Yeah, by basically being appealing in a lot of ways, <laughs> and by creating economic dependency. I found the, the mode of conquest in this book to be really interesting and really compelling, um, and I think it's something that comes up throughout for Peru at least is the idea that um, th- there are a lot of great things that the masquerade brings to its conquered people, like hygiene. At least in the like sense that we in you know the United States in 2020 recognize hygiene, <laughs> not so much the way Falcrest defines hygiene. Um, But engineering, technology, vaccines, they have like a lot of really great advances, scientific advances that make life better for a lot of people. It just comes at so high a cost.
1: Yes, it's definitely, it's understandable to see how some nations could be kind of drawn in.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: One of the things I thought was fascinating was the descriptions of how the parliament doesn't trust the military. (laughs) yeah. It sees the military as the great threat to republics. I mean, they're not totally wrong. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's how Rome fell. Rome was put on a path to failure once emperors were created.
0: Right. And that came through military prestige.
1: Right, exactly. A general became too renowned and too popular with his troops and the people, and eventually he gained the power to just march on Rome and establish himself. Totally. So the... I see where they're coming from with that, and it makes sense that a republic that has so many advances would respond and say, well, I guess we need a way to expand, and they would lean on things that are more easily controlled from the high level, and things that are so painfully bureaucratic. So very deeply bureaucratic. (laughs) And one advantage of that for them is heroes don't come out of bureaucracies, yeah. Like there will be no one person to be a rallying point for any sort of resistance. It's just a lot of people slowly, methodically, and competently doing their job.
0: I don't know. I would argue that Anthony Fauci is a hero of the bureaucracy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Only because he had something to fight against. <laughs>
0: right. Only because he's basically been martyred. So No
1: one knew his name before the pandemic. Truth. But he suddenly had has. Antagonist in his story, and now he has a now he has a heroic position.
0: That's a really great point, actually. So he
1: can march on Washington. Wait, hold wait.
0: on. <laughs>
1: Caesar, <laughs> Caesar Fauci at two, Fauci at two,
0: at two Burks. Um,
1: <laughs>
0: wait, Han. Anyway, no more public health jokes. But... <laughs> <laughs>
1: Man, I hope that ages well in a week when I release this.
0: (laughs) Oh God, it's It's definitely gonna gonna have anti-Semitic or something. Oh God, probably. I no, I I refuse to believe anything of the sort. Um, (laughs) But anyway, no, that's a really that's actually a really great way of framing it, and I hadn't thought about it that way because I I thought about the masquerade's modes of conquest to be more a matter of like maintaining this reputation as they would have seen it of being civilized and like moral high ground and they're above savage wars and things like that. I mean, they'll, they'll fight them if and when they must, and they'll fight them very decisively. But on the other hand, they, they don't need to most of the time. And I did, I found it very interesting to just learning about like their different, very effective military strategies. Like, um, uh, their Navy seems extremely dominant. Uh, I mean, except for, I guess the Oriati give them a run for their money, but you don't get much of that in the first book. Um, so like they, they could just conquer by military conquest, but they, they don't, they, they try to make themselves more of the savior. I mean, it's, it's very manifest destiny. It's like, we come to you and we bring, technology and civilization and we are going to show you the right way to be because you're simple savages and you don't know the right way. They definitely cast themselves in a benevolent role.
1: Right, I mean you just have to hear the governor talk in Ardwin.
0: Yeah, like Going totally. on
1: about how he's like, I just want to help these people. And, you know, some of these people in their system do seem to genuinely want to help them. They just are conditioned not to see the cost that tolls.
0: Right. And I mean, if you, if you are drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak, like you, I can see why you would feel that way. You're like, I am bringing, you know, civilization to people and it's not meant to be inhumane, but you know, sometimes you you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs kind of a thing. <laughs> and I think, I don't know if there's this idea that um, there will be an after the transition time, like... I have to wonder if these people believe, well, eventually they'll be integrated enough into... Like, you even said something before um, we started recording, which is like, oh, I mean, I feel like if you're foul life's pretty easy Um, because your society's been so engineered already that you're not really being suppressed. It's just, like, the life you know. Um, But I wonder if they expect that for the conquered people. Like, is there a time when the jurisprudence... Isn't going to need to be. Is it, hang on, it's the jurisprudence in the book, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, not jurisprudence, which is real life. Um, the jurisprudence won't have to control all the marriages anymore because we'll have like engineered a society of the perfect racial mix, or or what have you, and there will be no more tribadists or sodomites, et cetera, et cetera um within within the world, like I wonder if that's the end game or if they're like, well, we're always going to need to like stamp out sin, um, but it will no longer be the norm
1: I mean I would ab- think so that's they easier talk to about rule. it a
0: little bit as as um, the fact that like treatymont is known as treatymont now it's no longer known as lacta but it, it's like step by step kind of
1: All right, so it's a it's gotta be a slow, gradual. To path, and I mean, the end result is a condition to society that's easier to rule, requires less funds for things like garrison troops, because your garrison troops are now exterior, like warding against exterior threats and not warding against internal discord. True. So I, I've got to think that's their end game everywhere. If they could create an entire world that whose society looks like Valcrest, that would probably be the, the ideal for them. In a
0: way. Like, so you can see a lot, a lot of inspirations um from like history and fiction in this book, I think which is often the case with the books we do. But um what <laughs> one small one I was just thinking about today, because I've been watching a lot of Star Wars lately, is the Empire because the Empire in Star Wars talks about like this is the only path to lasting peace in the galaxy if we conquer everywhere and bring it all under the imperial banner. And then we'll have lasting peace. It's like so often an excuse for conquest. The idea that there's all these savage lands that need to be conquered and brought in. And then once they are, then we'll have peace. And it's just not true because not everyone's going to agree with your mode of governance. Um, and that's certainly true in Star Wars and in this. <laughs> um, but I, I, I don't know. I thought that was interesting. I like to think about what the what the sort of vision of the world is for them.
1: yeah I think that makes sense. i think the uh, having that benevolent in essence mindset is always an interesting kind of facet of a villain's psychology
0: yeah there's always a there's always a justification
1: yeah and that justification i think is what makes some villains or some you know tyrannical government so interesting in fiction more terrifying in in real life but interesting in <laughs> yeah. fiction
0: it's yeah it's it's a little bit easier to look at it um and, like, I guess enjoy it, in a sense. Enjoy the complexity of it when it's a fictional character and not an actual, like, great villain of history.
1: Yes, precisely. <laughs> so it's uh, it, it's just one of the more fascinating... Like, that's what makes a good villain, right? Is a in a compelling, interesting directive.
0: Right, like, I really like Carradine Farrier for that reason, as a character. He's just so jovial, you know? He's so likable. But the things he represents are pretty horrible and disgusting and he's like like the way he reacted to um Buru's friend being abused or her cousin Lau mm. um being abused and he was like no like you leave it alone hey no he's very reputable like the way he reacted all that was like really disgraceful and terrible Um, but, and yet he's just so charming. (laughs) Like, you can kind of forget it. Like, in that moment, you're like, you're terrible. You're a terrible person. But the rest of the time, you're like, ah, Carradine Farrier. You know what I mean? Like, you know he's, malicious isn't even the word, but like, you know he's a bad person. But I don't know about you. I like him. And even though he's a bad person, and like, that's a part of his character, and it's not something he has a problem with. He doesn't see himself as a bad person, which makes it all the scarier. Um, but he's still compelling and interesting to talk to and you like you like scenes that he's in you know
1: right so i think um i think that kind of brings us well into the idea of the imperial throne
0: yeah i think so too
1: oh uh, excellent shall we step into the imperial throne
0: oh sure <laughs> We're starting
1: oh yeah uh,
0: <laughs> the water's
1: fine <laughs> step on in discuss the imperial throne so I I was very much on board with when Cardon Ferrier was talking about the like idea of a you know concoction for the the emperor like that made them forget who they were but keep their memories or something.
0: Uh yes.
1: Yeah. And that was like that was a very cool. So what it was was a the the original concept after the revolution that established the masquerade was, the chemists were like, hey, we can come up with a concoction that will make someone forget who they are, but not what they knew. And so they right. can kind of like know so they everything confident. they know about the world. Right. The but still... Smart. Right, but not have any sort of ego to protect or, or in, uh, you know, their needs to advance. And that person will serve for like five years as the emperor. Uh, and then it will be no more. And that will be it. Right. And I was I like... like, yeah, they're going on. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah.
0: Hell yeah, Masquerade.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's a very cool idea. Like, I you know, you're, I know you're the bad guys and all, but hey, that's actually pretty, that's pretty clever. <laughs> and then they're like, obviously that's a lie. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> <I>
0: oh, <know>. shoot. <laughs> you're disappointed and a little embarrassed because you were like, oh, sweet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I was, like, so into this idea. It's like you're like, seeing something on Facebook that, like, looks like a really cool product and you're like, actually, it doesn't exist. <laughs> and it's just, it's right. not good. You, like, don't want anyone to know about it. You feel,
0: like, a little bit of a chump for believing it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> no, I totally agree. I yeah. liked when, uh, when he was saying, y- you go back to the world you, you ruled, and whether your policies made you a pauper or a prince, like, that's just, you know, what happens? That's just the play. Just whatever. Yeah, I was like, "Oh, that's such a cool idea," but sadly,
1: <laughs> sadly to lie.
0: Sadly, they just lobotomized some poor guy.
1: Yeah, which is so grim.
0: It, very grim. They love lobotomies in this, in this series.
1: Why do they all need to have lobotomies? anyone there at all? If like you're not going to have actually have the person be in it. Like if you're lobotomized, you're done.
0: Yeah. Right. And and. And it's still a five-year term, so they're lobotomizing people every five years, just to be this figurehead. Yeah, like what? What wasn't really? clear to me? And could you tell? Do they do? Do they like still elect an emperor in the way that they talked about? They just don't have a
1: potion, right? I'm not sure.
0: Interesting. I, I wonder if there's ever there female emperors.
1: I mean, there must be, right? Like the whole like they they really pride themselves on their you know like based on merit only
0: yeah i i was trying to think and maybe you can refresh my memory about um what we've done before where they're like convinced that they are a meritocracy but like they're kind of not oh you know what it is it's on red rising but uh, yeah. it, it, and, and this is actually more of a meritocracy than that is um
1: it does have that going for it
0: and this is the thing this this is the thing about like the the great amorphous villain that is the the Empire of Masks is that there are some very interesting like equality based ideas. It's almost like the French Revolution where it's like you got all the right ideas, you just do some horrible things. <laughs>
1: right, your execution, leaves must be desired.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's a great start. Didn't love where you took it, but this idea, I I, I think the idea of the masks <laughs> is really cool. It's it's a to me a great idea, but also has like a creepy feeling to it. The fact that like servants of the throne are masked when they serve the throne. Because like the only thing that matters is that you are working for the Empire. Um and it doesn't matter race, gender, none of it. That those are all off the table. And it sort of it helps to maintain that like quote unquote moral high ground of Falkrest where they they legitimately want to bring in these new races of people that they are conquering and try to figure out, like, what they're good at and so on and so forth. And it's like, yeah, that feels bad, but it's also... They don't treat it as necessarily, like, a sealed destiny. It's more like, oh, you're, you are more likely to be good at this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: So, it it doesn't... In terms of strengths, it doesn't feel particularly bad. In terms of weaknesses, it's probably more of an issue. I don't think we see that come into play too, too much. But I like the idea when they're like, well, you know, women are are really good at abstract thinking. So they they go very far in the Navy. And um, I think in the next book, you see a little bit more even of like, uh, you know, female naval officers and how successful they are and how it's like a real sisterhood.
1: Um, This book also goes into depth about how women are excellent mathematicians. Also right. because of that abstract thinking,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly, and you know it's all it's all like within the within the world of the book, right? But you're it right. Doesn't, women it are, doesn't, are actually bad at math. Yeah, yes,
1: everyone knows women can't <laughs> do math.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know it's like these things are accepted as truth within the book. Um, yes, but I don't think that there was a single verse where they were like, "eh, they're not really good for anything." I guess no, they... they kind of do that to the Terranokis, or at least Hezichast tries to, right? Hesichest yeah, I think like, Hezichast hey, was... good for farming or pleasure.
1: Yeah, I think he was like, yeah, he was like, yeah, the Terranoki don't really have any major strengths for us, and that... But Itinerant kind of was trying to... Push back. Uh, yeah, I, th- it's, I get the feeling that Hezichast and Itinerant are in some way opposites.
0: Yeah, um... Yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah, you know, maybe
1: colleagues, but rivals...
0: Right, so it's like, even if this one obviously very prestigious person has a chest is saying, eh, kind of writing off this race, like, that doesn't stop Baru from being a candidate for and eventually exalted. Um, so, like, really, you can do anything, or be anyone in Falcrest, and have success. It just, you know, at what cost? Because Baru's Beru, problem is not... That she is Teranoki, Baru's problem is, if anything, that she is gay. Yeah, that is like the thing that holds her back.
1: Right, that's her secret thing in within the bounds of the Empire of masks.
0: Right. Now, there's a, there's going to be something that that there there is often something that's going to put somebody uh, at a disadvantage. But I don't really remember what my original point was. <laughs> I think that it was just interesting to see what prejudices existed and also didn't really exist, at least not in the forefront in this book. It's like, obviously the way they treat, not, not even just homosexuals, but people who like have, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like quote unquote unhygienic marriages or, um, or just marry without the permission of the jurisprudence, um, et cetera, et cetera. They, there is more than one way to be discriminated against in this universe. But, you're also not necessarily discriminated against for at least some of the things that people are discriminated against for in America in 2020. So, oh, it's interesting
1: to me. Yeah, it's... it's, I agree with you. It's interesting to see where the discrimination lies because discrimination is still present, but it has nothing to do with race (laughs) Yes, or a little to
0: do with race, depending on who you are, or sex, yeah. And those are the ones we talk about the most right now.
1: Right, exactly. It's all to do with, um... Orientation and marrying without asking permission.
0: Yeah, sort of. Freedom.
1: We kind of got locked away a little while ago.
0: That one we've squared away. Yeah, mostly. Sexuality definitely still an issue for some people, but (laughs) freedom of marriage is uh, still allowed. I mean, you can't marry your cousin, but other than that,
1: it's for the best. It's
0: probably okay. I'm okay
1: with that one. Yeah.
0: I, yeah, I could accept that as, as a condition of having a modern society. <laughs> Somehow I'll stomach it.
1: <laughs> I can endure, I guess.
0: <laughs> but but if somebody did, we wouldn't torture them. <laughs> we, to we would to them out of it.
1: Yeah, exactly. We'd all go, wow, that's pretty fucking weird.
0: Yeah, we'd all be like, mm, uh, well... <laughs>
1: that's, I think, illegal, too, so...
0: That's illegal, but we're just going to not... Uh, you know mix it's fine
1: (laughs) (laughs) anyway so um onto the actual like power behind the throne yes so this council of you know imperial overseers basically yeah i kind of got okay back to the brave new world comparisons (laughs) i got a strong like uh world controller vibe
0: yeah totally
1: like exactly i feel like. <laughs> like they
0: sort of see through it
1: all right they have ascended to a high level they have access to the secrets yeah they it seems like really have everything kind of they they in, in theory have access to the empire's secrets and all the empire's resources and they they have
0: more personal freedom too
1: yeah i mean it seems like if baru had pardoned or refused to kill um what's her name? Tain Hu. Tain Hu. If she refused to kill Tain Hu that would have been fine and and probably preferable for the Empire.
0: Yeah it definitely was.
1: Because the idea was this principle that Beru had talked about earlier in the book which is rule by mutual blackmail essentially. I thought it was
0: interesting that both the Empire and the Arduini Rebellion did that.
1: Yes. Yeah. I, th- I did think that was cool. I thought when they started that, like, in that room, I was like, this is wild. <laughs> oh, my God. It's happening again. <laughs> yeah. What, what an insane principle. Yeah. Uh, but You'd it, really, really trust in that religion. That's true. That priestess had all the trust. Like, yeah. Who got her blackmail? I guess she's a priestess.
0: I guess she's. Yeah. Oh, That's pretty. That's, <laughs> that's, oh. that's pretty bad news in and of itself
1: yeah so that's good actually never mind yep oh got it so (laughs) uh so it was just it was that's an interesting way of going about this although it's interesting that they didn't know each other's secrets not personally it was all like kept right they knew the secrets were out there and they i think read them all but like anonymously like i think that was part
0: of it i don't I don't think it was i don't think the secrets were read i think that um
1: oh the reasons you're, you're for thinking here. of
0: the, the yeah the like desires
1: the that's intentions. Right. yeah so like the only person that knows this is all is the priestess which i think ruins the point of it i feel like they should all know all of each other's blackmail so that any one of them could
0: could act like anyone right. who's left
1: exactly if everyone but one turned traitor and went to the masquerade the yeah. one that's left could destroy them all right so that seems like a weird system. That's really assuming that the priestess doesn't get captured and killed.
0: Right. And I don't know if she then goes and shares it with, like, other priestesses or sort of what the what the plan of execution is. Or maybe it's really symbolic. I don't know. It's uh, like you have yeah. to be able to... You have to be devoted enough to give up that secret to
1: right. somebody. Right, then they go and burn the book.
0: Right, you know, like... It, yes you you have now shared your secret with somebody and that is a huge cost and it's maybe less about the power it holds over you than it is about like you showing that you're dedicated
1: mm. that makes sense That that's an option maybe i do wonder if the author's intent was mostly just to be like ah look they do this thing also that the throne does
0: yeah and it's didn't just an, in I a different further. in a different way though yes in a way that is, like, sacred and not Machiavellian.
1: On that note, wild that the, uh... They're, like, sitting in this temple, and, like, the temple is oiled. Yeah, So, like, a, a spark so will put it up. Yeah. That was pretty wild.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it was such a beautiful visual. That's such, like, a, a beautiful scene to me.
1: It was so well described.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I love the writing of this book.
1: I just find that this book is, like, a very good middle ground of... It balances being descriptive enough when it needs to be but also kind of knows when to let it lie and say they're walking through the woods
0: yeah i totally agree with that and i like that in terms of character descriptions it goes a lot more for like describing who a person is than their traits like their physical traits you know what i mean like occasionally it does the sort of racial um like what do they call it uh Incrastic analysis to sort of, I guess, indicate the way that the masquerade has affected Baru's way of seeing the world. Like, when she first meets Tain Hu, she's like, oh, it's the two Maya no's and blah blah blah. And, like, as a reader, unless you pay close attention and are looking for it, you don't necessarily know what all of that means. But you do know, like, Tain Hu is very strong, and she's very athletic, and she has a certain stride. And, like, you know all these things about who the person is and less so like, oh, she has skin like this color and so on and so forth. It, like any part of the physical description is something to tell you something about the character beyond just
1: their race. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was always really cool. It was like, I, uh, but I always forgot like what what it was. Like, oh, uh, hmm. who are the Maya? Uh...
0: Yeah, yeah. I had a or, little like, bit of an easier time
1: on? this time because it was my second read. Um, Oh, yeah, that would do it. But I agree. It's
0: like, you're hearing all these big words, and the only thing that's super clear to me in terms of, like, physical appearance is that the Stachiechi are, like, Scandinavian. (laughs) Like, Irish Scandinavian
1: Right, they're very pale, they're very red-haired, and they're very north.
0: Yes. Uh, But it implies that that's, like, a very exotic appearance um, for this world.
1: Is the paleness exotic, or is the red hair exotic?
0: I think the paleness is exotic.
1: Okay, interesting.
0: I think that everyone's at least pretty tan. I think it's like olive and up kind of, in terms of <laughs> melanin.
1: Yeah, it seems like they're kind of a. Uh, it, it seems like the civil, like the world, is basically very Mediterranean in feeling. That's kind of the vibe I got from the.
0: Uh, yeah, I can see what you're saying, the, which the makes sense because climate. I think that one of the inspirations for Falcrest
1: is Rome. I, yeah, I think that's that's fair to say.
0: Yeah.
1: Seems pretty seems pretty legit.
0: I mean, speaking of inspirations for Falkrest, I mean, it, the comparisons to Nazi Germany are very obvious because of the whole eugenics thing, but I also think that um, there's oh, yeah. a lot of, like, Western American history that you can see in Falkrest. Like, the idea of Indian schools um, stood out to me a lot, at least on this read.
1: Oh, yeah, and that was very... A grim thing and i feel like a lot of people that read this book would not make that comparison mostly because they didn't know those existed
0: yeah you're not like oh yeah the the masquerade just like america (laughs) you don't want to think of it that way yeah there's definitely comparisons to be drawn and i was thinking i was looking into the history of it a little bit because i mean i knew i know someone about it and um but it's definitely not something that's taught a lot in american schools Um, but there's a lot of parallels, like the idea that these children are sort of taken away from their parents and stripped of their sort of native cultural things. And, um, I forget, did they say if the kids were given uniforms in the masquerade schools? I think they were. I think they were. And it's this whole idea of like, oh, it's a charitable service. Um, and there's that famous quote from the, uh, man who ran the Carlisle Indian school that that you have to kill the Indian to save the man. And you, you really see that where they're like, you know, get rid of the corruption of all the unhygienic practices of Terranoke and, and of everywhere else they conquer, presumably. Um, and, then, and then, like, you, who is left over once we strip all that away, you are going to be, like, a functional member of society. And I think that the... <laughs> sadly, the Falkresti schools, I think, are even a little bit better than the Indian schools of our history because the Indian schools of our history were um didn't so much like prepare you for a a life of high ranking civil service. It was more like, you know, learn to cook and clean and learn to be like a blacksmith. And not that those aren't valuable things, but they're not exactly going to lead you to a life of wealth and prestige. Whereas at least if you were very gifted as Baru is, you could get that out of the um masquerade schools.
1: I mean this is almost grammar, right? Because it's like they are going there and taking the best and brightest of that civilization
0: yeah that's also a really good point taking so, like, them way into your school and they're, you're showing them that the only way they can have the bright future they deserve is by embracing the masquerade and everything it represents
1: yeah and that's so much worse I feel like yeah like the Indian schools were terrible and like they were you know they had their it's obviously a very bad thing but like this is taking away the, the future of a people basically and indoctrinating them to serve the masquerade
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, but the alternative
0: is in the Indian schools, and I mean, this is, like, which terrible thing is the worst terrible thing? (laughs) But I'm saying, like, for the Indian schools, I don't think that they exactly help children live up to their potential either. Um, They just sort of took them, like, they they just successfully cut them off from their culture Um, and made them feel like they didn't really belong anywhere.
1: So on one hand, we have... Well, indoctrinates the best of the people and takes them away. In the other hand we have didn't help them actually live up to their potential in any way.
0: Just and cut just, them off. And
1: just cut them off. Didn't really give them anything.
0: Yeah, there's no trade off there.
1: Ah yes.
0: Both mm. pretty awful situations, but
1: Yeah, it's just you know, it's really hard to tell which one's the shittier thing, huh?
0: <laughs> but I think it's easier for Fallcrest to be like, Oh, you know, we we just we just help them like reach their potential, and then we, we send them off to Falcrest, where true greatness lies. And you see that tension in Beru herself, where she is kind of disappointed that she's sent off to Ardwin because she really, really wants to go to Falcrest, because it represents not just power, but also knowledge. And she's so curious. And there's so much that she wants to learn, and she feels that she can only learn it by going deeper into the masquerade. And so as much as she is motivated by the disappearance of her father, and the destruction of her home, she also craves that power and craves that knowledge and knows that she can only get it. And I almost wonder if, um, if father Psalm and Taranoke are kind of just excuses for her. She can sort of justify her methods because she's like, I'm doing it all for my home. And I, I do think that she's sincere about it, but I wonder if those things hadn't happened, would she still have sought out? The masquerade and wanted to be a part of it because of everything she could learn from it.
1: I mean, I think so because, like you point out, she's so curious. Like, she's talking a lot about how like she wants to go learn and see, learn about all of the stars, like not just the Tarotki stars and like the constellations right. and you know, and presumably other knowledge. So I think she would want that anyway. But I think that this is the drive she uses to go the extra distance.
0: Yeah, it's probably true. She might have been happy with a life, like, just... as as a civil servant or as, as an academic in Falcrest.
1: Right, but the fact and that... she
0: she might have paid the price of, like, hiding her sexuality, and so on and so forth, but she wouldn't necessarily have, like, sacrificed people that she sincerely loves and admires, just for knowledge.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and she, like... Yeah, I mean, she she went the whole distance and destroyed a rebellion. And, like, yeah. came to love those people and tore it all down. I spent a lot of that time in the book. I don't know about you. Especially during your first read-through. Mm-hmm. But during their, she, the whole rebellion, I'm sitting here thinking the whole time, like... I'm pretty sure this is... Like, it, it wasn't really clear, mm-hmm. I feel like. It was hinted at in parts. But not... Like, it felt like more so the book was trying to convey this is just what she's doing to survive. And less so... Like, I feel like it's not really... Like, it's almost like how Baru was trying to trick herself into the rebellion. Like, she was... She needed to believe herself to her core, 100%. She was leading this rebellion and everything was as it seemed. It wasn't until the end when you know, kind of the 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 final moment of choice when she had to decide and you know and remember, oh yes, I'm actually not leading this rebellion, I am doing this for the masquerade. Off I go. Yeah,
0: I mean she even says that to an extent. She um she's like, it's it's strange how I was able to know that this is where I was heading and yet ignore it and push it aside and not like make myself not know it because if I had thought about it I wouldn't have been able to do what I've done. And for me the experience of reading this the first time I it's been a lot of me going like what are you doing? Like how does this help your goals? I thought you wanted Falcrest to love you. And I think that she um it, like to your to your point there is the idea that this is what she had to do to survive like they sort of set it up um with the inflation scheme and all of that, where it's like, well, you won't have success in Fogcrest anymore. Um, You won't be able to climb the conventional power or ladders to get to power Mm -hmm. because of what you did. And I, I spent a lot of time confused. Like why is, why is the fact that she destroyed a rebellion, not an excuse for the inflation thing? (laughs) Um, like that seems like a pretty good justification to me um but then she's she's on this whole journey and like leading this rebellion i'm like like what's the end game here like is she going to try to ally Ardwin to taranoke once she's kind of where i was at yeah like and and then there's the title of the book i'm like who is she a traitor to is she a traitor to falcrest is she a traitor to taranoke for embracing falcrest or will she betray arduin and that was sort of the question bouncing around my head the whole time. So so I take it then you were surprised by the ending?
1: I I mean I wasn't necessarily surprised. It was one of the outcomes I had kind of expected, especially when she was like talking about her secret with the with the priestess, and she was Yeah, saying, I've I gone too a, far. Right. I have a greater secret. Uh no no, the the first priest like in the Oh when she day. confesses
0: uh that she's gay. Yes,
1: exactly. So like the whole well, she's like, I have such a great secret in me. I can't tell them that one. I I need something. And so, like, she pointed out she was gay. It seemed almost uncontrollable. but, like, she felt like she was going to tell them the real truth. Or the the greater sin, anyway. Right. Uh, eventually, if she didn't just say, yeah, I'm gay. Okay, cool. Oh, oof. Right. Got but then she says chest.
0: that, and you're like, oh, my God, what's the bigger, what's the greater secret? <laughs>
1: Right. Yeah. I was like, I, yeah, I was like, obviously, yeah, you're gay. A surprise there. Yeah. yeah. Where, where is this going?
0: Right. Yes. But like her, her horror at sharing that secret made me very curious what her real secret was, but much like how Baru was able to shove all of it aside and, and sort of deny the truth of what she was doing, even to herself. I, the reader get caught up in what she's doing and don't, necessarily think about all the hints that something's amiss because there's lots of hints, but that's all they are. And they're pretty brief. So you have that moment with the priestess initially, and then you have later when she calls the priestess um, shortly before the end and is like breaking down and trying to confess and, and saying that she's doing it all for Terran and things have gone too far and she's gone too far down the road to stop them. Um, where like, you can tell that something's going wrong, but she's so committed to the rebellion and like willing to do so much that hurts Falcrest in theory, like killing the actual only, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Loyal <laughs> loyalist Falcrest um, duchess who is speaking a lot of sense, by the way. And that's probably kind of why Baru had to kill her and not just, I don't know say, okay, she's not on our side, you know. Um, but uh, what am I trying to say? So so she she does so many things that make it seem like she legitimately is against Falkrest that you wouldn't see her doing if she was a spy. Um, but she does them anyway. And so that, to me, is sort of what sells the twist at the end, if you can call it a twist. Because like you said, it's sort of one of the things that you're, like, considering... Is she going to betray Ardwin? Who is she a traitor to? Why is she the traitor Baru Cormorant? Um but speaking of her treachery, I, I the uh chant that they taught the marines was a real flex, but kind of awesome and like very grim and very sickening. It was all this Oh, things. she was always
1: ours or she was ours first. What was it? It was uh... Yeah,
0: she was ours from the beginning. Baruch Cormorant is an agent of the throne.
1: Yeah. Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> it totally gave me goosebumps. And I, like, felt sick for her. But, like, in a weird way, it was kind of like, that's so cool. <laughs> right.
1: That's <laughs> so addictive. What a cool vindictive. flex.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't be so cool with this, but
1: I am. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I feel conflicted, man. I mean, right, that, I think the author does an excellent job of making the reader feel conflicted. Right. Because power is seductive. Right, yeah, power is seductive. and as we've said, the masquerade's providing good things, right? Just not at a good price. And, and who does
0: she have the conversation with? Where they're like, "What's your end game? Like, are you just trying to tear down everything?" Is it Teen Who? I thought it was like, Teen Hu. early on, when, before yeah, when
1: she was auditing her estate.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Where she's like, "Are you going to tear it all down?" And she's like, "Well, I want to keep some of it. <laughs> it's a lot of good stuff that it brought."
1: Yeah, exactly. There there is some good here, but not enough. Right. And they were also talking about how like the they argued about really the best way to tear down the 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 masquerade. Like Tane Hu was like it only can be done from outside and and it was uh Baru that was arguing, well, you know, one could I mean it was all done in hypotheticals. Right. Well, you know, oh well one could all see kind a future and- where You know, someone from inside changes the path of the masquerade or whatever. However she said it. So, I was looking around Seth Dickinson's blog. And he is actually...
0: Well, he was a PhD candidate who studied um, implicit bias in police shootings. Hmm. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. Because I think about... And I mean, I don't even know if he thought about it this way when he wrote this book, because it was in 2015 that it was published. Um, But it made me think a lot about policing and the debate that's going on there. Like, is there something worth saving in the current policing system? And if so, can it be changed from within? um, Or does it have to be sort of torn down and built back up fresh? And you... (laughs) this is a weird pool but in brooklyn 99 that is discussed i don't know have you watched that i have right so we have um captain holt who is black and gay and has had to face a lot of difficult decisions during his um career to try to get to a point where he was high enough to change things and it's i mean it's not the only um setting or piece of fiction that asks this question but um It's just one that I'm thinking of right now, given where we are in life and as a society. Um, Like, do you climb the ladder and do you bite your tongue until you have enough power that you can make a difference for those who come after you? Or do you have to be separate from the start? Like, do you become corrupted by taking part in the institution that is corrupt? And I think that this book leaves it unanswered. And I don't know if the series is going to answer it. Because I don't know if there is an answer.
1: I mean, I think the answer is it can kind of go either way. And, like, the path that Baru was on, it just happened to be contrary to the path that Ardwin was on. Like, the... I mean, the rebellion that Ardwin was forming may have won and may have freed Ardwin... And that might have been it for Ardwin. But I think the path, just the fact that that exterior threat path crossed Baru's path, and Baru had to make a choice, and she chose to destroy the exterior threat in order to try to effect greater change, is kind of the difference.
0: Yeah, but only if she does it.
1: Only if she does it. Only if she can not be seduced by the power. Right, but that's always how it works like, like um...
0: but I, th- I don't think it's that simple either because I think that in order to gain power she has to be complicit in the things that Falkrest does and where does it end when will she have enough power that she can make up for all the people she's killed and like all the ways that she has reinforced the power of, of the masquerade I mean, she executed a lot of people who, in a sense, like she executed Tain Hu because she was a traitor, technically. And while, as we've discussed, the masquerade probably would have preferred that Tain Hu live um, because of what she meant to Beru, she's still taking a, a, you know, a quote unquote tributist and ending her life and punishing treachery quote-unquote and like doing all these things where eventually does her motive matter does it matter that she did it so that she can be free to act without having any hold over her i don't know like maybe maybe it matters still at this point but how much more of that can she do before she is just an agent of the throne in actuality regardless of what's in her heart
1: That's a good question. And who yeah. you know, I guess I don't who, have an answer. No one has an answer, I, I don't think. I mean it's We'll a... see if
0: Seth Dickinson has an answer by continuing to read the series. <laughs> <laughs> um yes. I did think that it, it was sort of a almost indulgent symbolism at the end, but in a in a way I enjoyed that she has this um blind spot injury where one side of her world is dark. And I thought it was interesting the way they talked about it, where she like crowded all the numbers on the clock when she drew it um and the way she had the 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 hall decorated at a lighted keep
1: oh yes um,
0: where one side of her it's like the the Falcrest side and the Arduini rebel side
1: yeah that was interesting I I think it took a while to injury because <laughs> I was on board with it just being like yeah she got hit in the back side of the head and uh and she can't see over there anymore but then they're like, but she loses conceptual access to the side of the world, too. I'm that's like, true. That sounds a lot like no-object permanence. Like, if she turns too far to the left, she can no longer imagine someone being over on her right.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's sort of hard. It's hard to, like, see the um, actual practical aspects of the injury from, like, the sort of symbolic injury and and it seems like she has lost vision and also she has experienced trauma and they're like coming together to cause this very weird, very unique, um, I guess injury for lack of a better word. I mean, I guess it's, it's a physical injury and an emotional injury, right? Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's definitely left pretty big in the book. Um, but I, they go into it a little bit more in the next one, which I started. Uh, it, and it seems almost more like a behavioral thing for her. She just, like, turns turns away um, when she doesn't want to think about something or doesn't want to see something. But it is still kind of like... But does it literally go away, or are you just making it go away, like, in your psychology?
1: Right, she's ignoring it, like... Right. What is exactly. happening here? Yeah, I don't know. It was, I did, it was weird.
0: I did see somebody wrote online that it... um is reminiscent of Odin's trading his eye for wisdom, and I was like, "Oh my god, that's so cool!"
1: Oh, that's a good that's a good symbolism. I like that.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a good that's a good pull. I don't a, know if that, that was the intent pool. at all, but I liked it. Uh,
1: headcanon accepted.
0: Headcanon accepted.
1: Yeah, that's. I mean, that's the price you pay, and I think if Baru goes through this without paying the price, it will. I think it's worse if she doesn't pay the price, right? Like not from a yeah. storytelling or like a. You know, like a, oh, interesting story, but like it's a, it's worse morally. Like if you're going to go and progress to this level of power and sacrifice so many people and not pay any price yourself, you should also have to suffer. Right, exactly.
0: Yeah. And not just emotionally.
1: Right, exactly. You need to have some sort of physical corruption.
0: Yeah. Because she, she displays an almost disturbing ability to, put her feelings aside.
1: Um, almost sociopathic.
0: Almost sociopathic. If I knew more about psychology, I would maybe have a more decisive opinion on that. But uh, the idea, I mean, she, you definitely see her sort of destroying herself even even before she starts the rebellion. Um, there's like alcoholism, isolation, paranoia throughout. And I imagine that that will only continue. And that's sort of the cost of her power. And so there is definitely, there's definitely a lot of psychological burden, but I see what you mean, that it seems only fair that she should also suffer a physical wound, especially one that's so symbolic because I mean, she has had to hold two parts of herself that are so conflicting. She has to be that mechanistic, very analytical thinker to make her decisions. But all of that, all of her like almost psychopathic choices are motivated by love of home and family, and it's just so contrarian to me that I, I, it it makes her a very compelling antihero for me, and I do not usually like anti-heroes <laughs> <laughs> but i and i don't i mean I guess I like her, but most of all I'm just fascinated by her, and I feel sympathy for her because I, I feel pain for the choices she makes and, and she does a good job justifying them <laughs> because she gets what she wants in the end. She gets her goal. I mean, at least her, her short-term goal of ascension. And again, we'll see what she does with that goal. We'll see if she is able to work the good to make up for all the evil that it took her to get to that position. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I find her compelling. Very compelling.
1: I do think she's a fascinating character. And I am yeah. curious to see where the monster brewer Cormoran takes us. I know.
0: Definitely. Let
1: me see. Are there any other topics we want to discuss?
0: I'm going through my list. I'm going through my list. Um, I think uh, I, I like the, the structure of Falcresti philosophy coming through in Qualms.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, what was the qualm about uh, responsibility? The
0: hierarchic
1: qualm. The hierarchic qualm. I really en- I wanted to talk about that a little bit. I really enjoyed that as a... a um, as a part of the identity of the masquerade.
0: Yeah, it's like a simplified moral structure.
1: Right, and the... But it has a strong... You were talking earlier about how there's... like It's very reminiscent of the Nazi Germany...
0: Yeah, oh but
1: yeah. It's got very strong, I was following orders vibe.
0: Oh, it's 100%
1: what it is. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just straight up what it is, right?
0: It just completely absolves you of
1: personal responsibility as long as you have like sworn an oath. Right, as long as someone above you is giving an order that you have vowed to follow, then you are immediately absolved of all guilt. Right. You are, You owe an allegiance, therefore you can do no wrong <laughs> in service of that allegiance. Right and that is so I mean that's a brilliant way to justify to like for so many people to justify their their evil essentially. Right? Like they're, you know, they're oh starting a like causing a plague in a island nation because yeah. they were ordered to. Well, it's okay, they don't have to, you know, they Well they were sleep. ordered to do it. Right, so. they can sleep well at night. They were ordered to do that by a higher level.
0: Right. Yeah, it's like this permission given.
1: Like you, you, you have nothing
0: to worry about. You were following orders.
1: It's interesting how much itinerant harked on that, right? He was constantly yeah. asking Baru, "What's the hierarchic qualm?" Yeah, that's true. I, I think it's particularly interesting because, well, now there's no one else, right? Baru's ascended.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. at the
1: top of responsibility. And I think that's going to come out in this next book where she can no longer... There's no comfort in it. Right, And, and her only hope... Like, she's doing all these evil things, right, as we've discussed, and you said that you think she might be using her allegiance to Terranoke as an excuse. And I'm looking forward to seeing whether or not she continues to hang on to that excuse as her hierarchy...
0: Right, is that is that her highest calling? Is that her loyalty, her oath? Right, she is all in service of Terran Oak. and that I mean that is what she says to the priestess. Priestess, she says it's all for Terranoke.
1: <clears throat> but I guess we will see whether or not that's true anymore in this next book.
0: It's interesting. I hadn't thought about it in terms of how Beru justifies her actual actions, in not just because. I believe it's uh, a parritor who says, like, take some comfort in it. You know, you're you're acting in service of a throne, basically. Um, but I hadn't thought about it as you're acting in service of Terran Oak. <laughs> This is your highest calling. And therefore, like, everything you do is justified because all of it has that um, motivation behind it and that allegiance.
1: I do feel like the... Um the, you know, some dynamics that might come in the next book are, like, about everyone being kind of a little bit on edge about Baru ascending without any great dirt that they have on her. Yeah. Like, they have theories that she's gay, but, like, she also tried to play off as Tain Hu was just lying to try to get her in trouble. Yeah. So, like, maybe it's not actually true. And, like, it's very much a, a, um... It's not like a concrete enough thing to destroy her, basically.
0: Right, hearsay is not evidence.
1: Right, as was discussed in this book, you can like be, you know, uh, prejudiced against for suspicion of being a tributist, but you cannot be actually circumcised. And I guess right. that's, I guess that, I think that's the only punishment: cast out. I'm assuming. What? I'm assuming there's some sort of casting out from social ladders.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of unclear. Is it like, and then you're allowed to continue because you no longer can experience sexual pleasure, so you're no longer going to behave like a deviant.
1: Yeah, I don't know.
0: Like, they probably treat it as like a corrective surgery.
1: Much like all the conditioning that they do to people.
0: Right, yeah. Like, if the conditioning fails, well then, okay. I mean, you can't use it responsibly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Essentially. (laughs) That's the vibe that we're getting there.
0: But then I imagine, I imagine you're... Permitted to go about your life at that point,
1: so like they have assuming no...
0: that you don't like sow sedition because of it,
1: right? So they have no power over Baru from the uh, from the Tenhu perspective. She's about to ascend or has ascended and gained all of their power, like as far as being a member of the throne, right? They all have this great power, right? And she's now equal with them,
0: with but it, in a sense greater because. She doesn't have um leverage. They don't have leverage.
1: And she has a hierarchy still. She still has a higher power to be calling to and justify her actions. That's true. Which because could, so what matter. do the
0: other members of the ruling council have?
1: Right. I mean I guess the throne. The throne or like the But they are the throne. Foul crest, but they are Falcrest. Right. Like in a very real way, they are the beating heart of the Empire. Right. At least the brain well they're certainly the brain because you know
0: again lobotomy Ooh. it's like they 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 can't serve the emperor because the emperor has no will
1: so i don't know i think that'll be very cool i think it'll be very interesting i look forward to getting to that book
0: yeah i will say i uh really liked uh her symbolic name agonist agonist
1: agonist
0: yeah it's at the end of the book when she's writing letters
1: I see. Yes, I f- honestly forgot about that.
0: Yeah. So I mean, like in in I guess biochemistry, which is not the sense that she means, but in biochemistry, <laughs> an agonist interacts with a receptor to to cause something to happen. Um, it's like the opposite of an antagonist. An antagonist works against something, and an agonist works towards something. I mean, she, that might be
1: what she means.
0: Well, she 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 uh, translated as like someone who struggles. Um. Which actually is kind of funny, too, because I was just thinking about Mein Kampf.
1: <clears throat> so. <laughs> I just thought of. The, uh, man, they are not, it's funny how many, um, Nazi subtexts I missed in this, because I'm currently listening to a book about World War II.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's right there, man, it's right there.
1: It's right there. It's more focused on Churchill, so I guess maybe that's why I missed it.
0: Yeah, well, I I mean, to be fair, the um, mind comp thing only just occurred to me. I'm curious to see if that uh, is a coincidence or not. (laughs) But, (laughs) to be fair, the third book in the series is called The Tyrant Bearer Cormorant, so. Uh, But But there's apparently going to be four books. I didn't know that. I thought it was a trilogy. My
1: money is on The Tyrant Bearer Cormorant she becomes the emperor, but without the lobotomy. That's my theory.
0: I bet. It'll be awesome.
1: Let's go read. (laughs) (laughs) What a good sign off. (laughs)
0: yeah yeah it doesn't suck all right but we're not reading that next peter what are we reading
1: (laughs) oh no we're not reading that next don't be ridiculous
0: i mean we are but not not to you guys
1: well we never read tulips cc
0: (laughs) not for you guys not with you guys you know no Um, not with you guys that's the best way of putting it (laughs) (laughs) that's a much better phrasing okay
1: oh my anyway no so we are going back to the interdependency series and finishing that up as far as what's released i think that's the end of the series uh with the last emperor by john scalzi yay so i'm looking forward to that i don't actually remember that much of the book so i'm very excited (laughs) i'm pretty sure it was great i'm pretty sure it was spectacular yeah it's
0: a safe bet with scalzi honestly
1: That's so good. He's so good.
0: (laughs) So that's exciting. Uh, That will be our book for February, which will come out on February 1st.
1: Wow. All right. Cece, where can they find us?
0: Uh, Well, they can find us on Facebook.com slash Sidebar or Facebook.com slash Signifying Nothing Network or Twitter, uh, where we are at SigNothingNet. Or, Peter, how can they email us? You
1: can email us at sci-fi sidebar at signifyingnothingnetwork.com. Uh, that's it, right? I you have get more to say. Hmm?
0: Um, we are on uh, all the podcatchers, so please uh, look us up. Rate us, review us, share us with friends.
1: Do all, do all those things. Yes. Let us
0: know if you have topic suggestions or criticisms, et cetera, et cetera.
1: I'm sure they have Criticisms.
0: Well, probably. We talked about a lot of controversial things this episode, and I'm not convinced we did it well. We did our best, okay?
1: We did our best, man. We We're did, trying. We did it. We did our best.
0: Uh, yeah. It's sort of called the um, Nazi uh, Empire <laughs> awesome. in some senses, but not in most senses. I want to be clear. <laughs> they just flex well.
1: Um, flexing well, I suppose, is... Uh, yeah, fair. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm
0: not pro Falkress, guys. I just want to be clear.
1: <laughs> I'm just like, you know, I, I get it. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah, I get it. I mean, you gotta acknowledge the complexity, right?
1: <laughs> All right. They did
0: a lot of things. They, they're doing a lot of things in the world that are very, very bad and evil, but they are doing some good things.
1: I, I suppose that's fair.
0: We can take the good things and get rid of the bad things. That's the goal.
1: I mean, that's Beru's goal, right? Like, that's That's her entire goal.
0: That is the whole point of this whole story. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Uh, Yeah, so that's it.
1: All right, let's wrap this up.
0: I'll talk to you guys in February.
1: All right. Thanks, guys, for listening.
0: This has been Sci-Fi Sidebar from the Signifying Nothing Network.
1: A tale told by idiots. Bye, guys.